you haven't figured out yet, this morning we're going to look at the Magnificat. And so open up to Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. If you have a copy of God's Word, there's a, a pew, pew Bible there, a black ESV hardcover. Feel free to open up. There's also, remember, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please grab one of those blue ones on the way out. We'd love to give you one. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, and so go in the New Testament, or feel free to use the table of contents if you have no idea where it is. It's totally fine. You're going to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you get to John, you've gone too far. Go back. We're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. And again, if you're unfamiliar with the way the Bible works, the way, the, what the Old Testament said is someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospel accounts that we're in this morning, say someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. So who is that someone? It is the promised Redeemer, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're looking at this song that Mary sings in anticipation of the birth of Christ. And so have that open there with you this morning. Now as you are opening up there and you're thinking about this, raise your hand if you have purchased something online in the past six months. If you've bought something online in the past six, pretty much everybody, yeah, or uh, have you ever thought about how every time you order something online, it is actually an act of faith? Have you thought about that? Every time you order something online, it's an act of faith. You have to trust that they have it in stock. You can't physically see it. You have to trust that they'll actually pack it up for you and put it on a truck. You can't watch them do it. Then you have to actually trust that all those tracking updates that sometimes kind of feel like a fish finder, like is it actually true or not, you have to trust that those tracking updates are actually accurate. Why? Because you can't see the package coming to you. It's kind of this idea of I'm taking it on faith and trusting these things. The whole process is an act of faith right up until the second the package actually arrives. And actually, some would argue, right until the very second that you actually open that box up and realize that it was actually the correct thing that was sent to you. So you, you think about that whole endeavor there is this kind of an act of faith as you can't see this product move from point A to point B. Now, we typically order from a trusted retailer. You think about, you know, Amazon or Target or a favorite site that you like to go to and order things. And we usually order from a trusted retailer instead of like some sketchy no-name website we've never heard of before. Why? Why do we do that? Because we've probably had a good experience with that company or website in the past. They've delivered on their promises in the past, and that gives us confidence that they'll deliver on their promise in the future. And so we order from them again. Example is I've ordered something from Amazon before, like many of us have, especially as we live in a rural area. That's kind of where we get our stuff from if you don't have the time to go up to Chattanooga or to Huntsville. And I've ordered something from Amazon in the past, and the correct item has arrived in a timely manner, and the box didn't look like a pack of gorillas got into a fight over it. And so the next time that I need to order something, I have confidence that they're going to deliver on that promise again, just like they did the last time and the time before that and the time before that. Now, when we think about the Christmas season, the Advent season that we're in right now, have you ever thought about Christmas and Advent in this way? That is an act of faith. Have you ever thought about the birth and incarnation of Jesus not only as a promise kept in the past, but also as a sign of a future guarantee? We weren't alive when Jesus was born. 
You think about we can't see him now. We have to trust that the future arrival date that's promised in Revelation is going to happen. But we, as we think about the narrative of Christmas, as we think about the narrative of the Scripture, we find out that this is no fairy tale. This is no myth. This happened in real space and time. Here's what Tim Keller said in his book, Hidden Christmas, which I've referenced a few times, would highly recommend to you. Here's what Keller said. Matthew does not begin his story of Jesus' birth by saying once upon a time. He says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you may be familiar with Matthew's begats in the opening few verses of Matthew chapter 1. You know, it says Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Judah. And he just goes on down, and then he gets to Jesus. He begins and says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Keller continues and says, that means he is grounding what Jesus Christ is and does in history. Jesus is not a metaphor. He is real. This all happened. So we think about what's going on here in this text this morning. Our faith is simultaneously a looking backwards and a looking forward faith. Those two things exist. We look backwards in faith to remember how God has kept His promises in real space and time before we were ever born. And we look forward in faith to the promises of God still yet to be fulfilled in the future in real space and time, maybe even long after we die. And this gives us hope and confidence in the here and now. So you can see there's past, present, and future implications to our faith. We trust what God has done in the past. He's been faithful to His Word. So why in the world would He not continue to be faithful? And what that means is that gives us confidence and hope right in the here and now because of who God is. And so this morning, we're going to read the words of Mary, the mother of Jesus, commonly referred to as the Magnificat, which comes from the Latin word for magnify. I'll get into that in a minute. What you see in verses 26 to 38 is the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she will conceive and have a son named Jesus who will grow up to be an everlasting king because he is the son of God. And he also tells her that her older cousin Elizabeth is also going to have a son. And so in verses 39 to 45, Mary and Elizabeth meet and it's a joyous occasion and Mary sings her praise. She sings this song of praise. Now, you may have noticed, and if you're new here, what we've been using is that hymn of the Father's love begotten as kind of the framework for our Advent season. And this morning, we're going to kind of hone in on verse 3. So you may have picked up in verse 3, This is he whom heaven taught singers sang of old with one accord, whom the scriptures of the prophets promised in their faithful word. Here's the phrase that we're going to hone in on this morning. Now he shines the long expected, let creation praise his Lord. So I want you to think as we read this text, I want you to see if you can spot the backwards and forwards component in Mary's song. See if you can pick up on that. Okay, so with that in our mind, let's go to Luke chapter 1. Let's actually start in verse 39. Let's give attention to the reading of God's holy word, may we receive it by faith. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. 
And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now we get to the Magnificat in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. As we heard when we lit the Advent candles this morning, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. I'm grateful for that. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us receive his word by faith. Please pray with me. Father, we come to your word and we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work. Jesus, we pray that you would receive all glory and honor this morning as we have considered how you have done great things. Father, be with us in these moments Redescribe reality to us, and Father, just warm our hearts to the things of you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever noticed this time of year is really, really always closely linked with music, with songs? You think about there are entire radio stations that for the month of December will switch their normal format into Christmas music only. And many of us, as we're driving around, we scan and kind of go up and down trying to find those stations that do Christmas music only during this time of year because it just feels right that we sing Christmas songs during the Christmas season. Regardless of your position on Mariah Carey's song, All I Want for Christmas is You, this is kind of like a debate over whether pineapple should be on pizza or not. There's, there's really strong opinions on both sides, whether you like that song or not. Everybody has a strong opinion on it. But whether you like it or not, that song is kind of forever linked with the Christmas season. Kind of like you think about the old crooners, Bing Crosby and Dean Martin. And we love listening to these Christmas songs this time of year like... You tell me, like, you don't like Nat King Cole singing the Christmas song, just crooning. I mean, it's just so good. And we think about this kind of particular group of songs. You also think about the great hymns of the faith that we love to sing this time of year. Like, it's just kind of right to sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, or, you know, Silent Night, or O Holy Night, or A Little Town of Bethlehem. I mean, you think about this, these wonderful joy to the world, these wonderful hymns that we sing this time of year, that the Advent season is always marked by a particular group of songs. And so as we consider this song this morning, this is another song of Christmas that we're reading, I want us to to ask, you know, what can we learn about God and His plan of redemption through His Son? What do we learn about God's plan of redemption through this song this morning? Two things, if you're a note-taking type of person, these are going to be our two main points. Number one, we learn to look backwards with great rejoicing. We look backwards with great rejoicing. The other thing is we learn to look forward with great hope. So we learn to look backwards with great rejoicing. We learn to look forward with great hope. Those are our two points. Let's look at that first one. We learn to look backwards with great rejoicing. This is kind of verses 46 to 50. 
Now, did you pick up on the main focus of Mary's song? I'll give you a hint. It's not Mary. The main focus of Mary's song is on a God who saves and shows grace. Look at verse 46 where she opens up and says, My soul magnifies the Lord. It comes from the, it's called the Magnificat because in the Latin it says Magnificat anima mia dominum is where we get that from. Magnificat, that's why it's called that. Now, Reverend Dr. David Strain from First Pres in Jackson, I went and read like a little article that he put out, super helpful, about thinking about this word magnify. And so I figured I would just tell you what he said because I've never had an original thought in my whole life. So here's what David Strain said. He said that there's two ways to actually magnify something. You can do it with a microscope or you can do it with a telescope. If you think about a microscope, it's something that's actually very, very small in and of itself, and so you use a microscope to make it bigger. The other way that you can magnify something is with a telescope. With a telescope, something is actually very big, but it actually looks small to the naked eye because there is a great distance that exists between you and it. So you use the telescope to close that distance. Like you think about, we love the old, you know, like pirate movies and stuff, and they pull the telescope out and they scan the horizon, and they're like, what is that out there? It might be a massive island. It might be a massive ship. But they look out on the horizon, it looks really tiny, so they pull the telescope out, and what it does is actually closes the distance between the viewer and the object, and it makes it appear bigger because it really is, in all actuality, big. We think about this morning, David Strain said that Mary's using a telescope here. And here's a quote that he said that was really helpful. He said, Mary knows actually the only sure way to lasting rejoicing is to magnify God. That is to see him as he really is. The bigger your God, she is teaching us, the deeper your joy. The bigger your God, the deeper your joy. She wants us to see God as he really is in the glory of his sovereignty and saving mercy and grace, end quote. So when you think about Mary using the telescope here, he argues you could read this verse, my soul enlargens the Lord. Now what does Mary rejoice in? Look at verse 47. She starts in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord, verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? Look at verse 48. For he this God that she rejoices, has looked on the humble estate of his servant, speaking of herself. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary has been the recipient of mercy and redeeming love. The God of the universe has chosen to set his love upon her, and she is humbled by this grace. She is humbled by his mercy. And as we pause for a moment this morning, if you are here and you consider yourself a Christian this morning, Are you able to echo the humility and wonder of Mary this morning when you consider all that God has done to rescue and redeem you? you, Are you able to have the heart of Mary? When you say, my soul just magnifies the Lord because He has just been kind to me. He has looked upon me in my helpless estate. He has chosen to set His love and grace and mercy upon me. Are you able this morning to just echo those words of Mary? Lord, you're so good. Lord, you've been so kind. And I didn't deserve any of it. Think about this. The God of the universe has chosen to set his love upon you. And not just that, but actually to send his son, 
in flesh to ransom you back from a well-deserved grave in hell. It's amazing when you think about it. You think about the reality of the incarnation. It had to happen this way. Jesus had to come in real space and time and be truly God and truly man to die in our place. And yet all of this, all of it, was part of the sovereign decree and providence of God. And at just the right time, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, to redeem those who were under the law. You think about just the, it just makes the gospel just kind of sparkle. You think about Romans chapter 5 verse 6, says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Think about Mary saying, He has looked upon my humble estate. That is what God has done. He has looked upon our humble and lowly estate and shined the light of His glory and grace into that darkness. You think about Many of us struggle, I know I have struggled with this in the past, and you probably have too, where you ever felt like God feels distant? God feels just kind of out there somewhere on the horizon, maybe I can't see Him. He feels distant, He feels far away. What passages like this, this morning do, is they serve like a telescope for our hearts. As we gaze and we see the beauty of God and the gospel message of grace, When he seems far and distant, passages like this are like the telescope that come out and we remember how big and wonderful and mighty he is and just how gracious he is because we're so prone to forget, aren't we? I forget just like that, if you're probably like me. God seems bigger. God seems closer. Our joy and our worship increases accordingly as we think about how God has looked upon our humble estate And called us to Himself. Once again, we are reminded that God chooses what is weak in the world to display His glory. Again at verse 48. She mentions that she will be seen as blessed by future generations. But not because of what she has done, but because of what God has done. Look at verse 48. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on... Generations will call me blessed. Why? Verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. He has looked upon me and shown me grace. And he's good. Too often we're more concerned with making a name for ourselves, aren't we? Instead of making much of God and what he has done. We are blessed because he has been faithful. And we need to repent of the ways that we are trying to rob God of His glory as we try to make a name for ourselves over and above God so that somehow we would be the recipient of praise and glory. What passages like this remind us of is God and God alone is the only true recipient of all worship and praise. And all that we do, if we are in Christ, just reflects who He is. We defer by default Lord, you have done great things. Isn't Christ good? Look at what God has done. We're like a mirror. Again, here's what Tim Keller said. He said, these gospel narratives are telling you not what you should do, but what God has done. The birth of the Son of God into the world is a gospel, good news, and announcement. You don't save yourself. God has come to save you. That is the beauty of the Incarnation. 
We could not do it on our own. That's why we needed Jesus. Again, that's why I've said each and every week for the past couple of weeks, I'm not here to give you a checklist on how to be a better Christian or a better husband or whatever. I don't have that. What I do have is Jesus. You need Jesus, not a checklist. You don't need a self-help plan. You need a Savior. That's what you need. Because your self-help plan will fail immediately. Some of you have tried it. And some of you are worn out this morning because you've been trying to functionally be your own Savior and you're just too afraid to admit it. What the gospel allows us to do is to admit, yes, I have tried to be my own Savior and I have done a terrible job. And so I come before you, O Lord, and I confess, Lord, I'm sorry. I've been on the treadmill trying to do it myself. And what I haven't been doing is trusting you as God Almighty. I've been trying to be my own little Savior with my own self-salvation project. Repent and stop. It is going to wear you out. And no wonder Christmas just kind of pings off your heart. If you really see the incarnation as your only hope in this great rescue plan, how could we not stand in awe of what God has done and say, Thank you, Jesus, that you have looked upon my humble estate and you've shown me grace. It changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. Anna Waring wrote a hymn in 1858 in South Wales called, Father, I Know That All My Life. It's very little is known about her. And one of the lines of her hymn reads, Content to fill a small space if thou be glorified. Content to fill a, a little, a small, a tiny place if thou be glorified. Lord, I'm okay with that. I'm okay if not everybody knows who I am. I'm okay if not everybody you know, thinks and, and praises me for all that I have done. Content to fill a small space if you are glorified in that. You can tell that Anna had the telescope pointed in the right direction. As she peered through it, she saw God in His fullness and stood in awe of the fact that God would still care about her and her life in the good times and the bad. She wrote later in that hymn in verse 7, she wrote, quote, There are briars besetting every path that call for patient care. There is a cross in every lot and an earnest need for prayer. But a lowly heart that leans on thee is happy anywhere. End quote. Again, her name is Anna Waring, and she wrote the hymn, Father, I Know That All My Life. I can still remember Dr. Kelly mentioning this in the chapel message, and I can hear him say in his thick Dillon, South Carolina, southern accent, content to fill a little space. If thou be glorified. Stuck with me. I was like, oof, give me some of that. So this morning as we peer through the telescope and we consider the coming of our Lord in flesh, we see that God has closed this infinite gap between a sinful us and a holy him. And how did he close that gap? At the manger. The gap was closed. Because we were unable to close that gap ourselves, so God came to us. That's the gospel. God came to us. And this passage is like a telescope. He's high and he's lifted up and he's far away. But yet, he came and he dwelt among us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen him. This gap got closed. So, are we able to echo Mary's words of praise in verse 49? 
When we consider the faithfulness of God and we look back and we see His promises fulfilled, suddenly verse 50 begins to make sense. Verse 50 says, And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Think about how God has been faithful from generation to generation of His people. Those who fear Him, those who show reverence, who stand in awe of Him and trust Him by faith. He's been faithful to generation after generation after generation after generation of those who have gone before us. And we look backwards with great joy. Why? Why? For He who is mighty has done great things. Look at what He's done. And we rejoice in the Lord. And if God's been faithful to His promises so far, what reason do we have to doubt Him in the future as we trust Him with our current situation and also our eternity? He's always been faithful. Why do we have any doubt that He's not going to continue to do that? We trust Him. We don't just look, look backwards with great rejoicing, though. In our second point, which is going to be shorter than the first, we look forward with great hope. Verses 51 to 55. So we look backward with great rejoicing. We look forward with great hope. This is kind of the, so what? How do we live now? The second half of the Magnificat employs what scholars call the prophetic perfect tense. And it's used to describe future events that are so certain to happen that they are referred to in the past tense as if they have already happened. We get an example of this in Isaiah 14. Again, this is the prophetic tense. Isaiah 14, the prophet talked about the coming Babylonian captivity as it had already happened, as an accomplished fact. Here's what Kent Hughes said in his commentary. He said, Mary moves from naming personal reasons for magnifying the Lord to giving prophetic reasons for making Him great. The movement's quite natural. Like riding a ship up to a wave's crest, you begin down into the dark trough, but as the wave swells, you ride upward to its bright crest where you can look across the surrounding waves to the rimming horizon, intermittent islands, and distant landfall. End quote. He says you... Go down the wave, but then you come back up, and for a brief moment, oh, I can see. That's what Mary's doing here. So what does Mary see as she scans the horizon and sees the future of Jesus, the one who is in her womb? What she sees is a great reversal. Those strutting about in pride and arrogance will be brought low as they see the, the arm of the Lord at work. As we see in verse 51, it says, He has shown strength with His arm. Now, do you know where else this phrase, arm of the Lord, is found? One place in particular that's really interesting. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. This prophecy that points forward to Christ. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6 says, Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. For he had no form or majesty that we should look in him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Notice this is past tense, looking forward with past tense. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, you get this prophetic tense that it's so real that it's, it's as if it has already happened. 
And that's what Isaiah sees here in the, the, the vision of the suffering servant. And this is a prophecy speaking of the future crucifixion of Jesus, yet spoken of as accomplished fact in the past. That this reversal would be accomplished by the future birth and life and death and resurrection of the baby in her womb. And she was so sure of it, it was like it had already happened. And you think, so what? If you are here and you trust Christ, this actually already has happened. We stand on the other side of the cross. We stand on the other side of the resurrection. All of these things have already happened in real space and time. Christ was born, Christ lived, Christ died, He went into the tomb, He was resurrected, and He ascended into heaven, and we wait for Him as He said, I'm coming back. And if all of that's already happened, why in the world should we doubt when He says, I'm coming back? And we say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. It gives us hope. Look at verses 52 and 53. It says, those in high places who oppress God's people will ultimately be toppled, and God will raise His people up and provide richly for them. That those who know their desperate need will be cared for and united to Christ. Again, here's what Kent Hughes said. The gospel lifts up the humble and casts down the proud, affecting a mighty reversal. From this we understand that life is not always as it appears. Spiritually, down is up and up is down. End quote. The question here this morning when we consider the incarnation. Do you see your desperate need for Jesus this morning? Are you able to say, all I have is Christ? Many of you, as we sang that hymn earlier, you notice that we changed the words. You might be going, why aren't we singing, I surrender all? Why are we singing, Christ surrendered all? Because that's more biblical. You didn't surrender some. Christ surrendered all. He did all of it for you. The only thing that you bring to the salvation equation is the sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing you bring. After that, it's all Christ. And so that's why we say, praise be to Christ. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. As Christians, we look forward with great hope as we remember Christ's resurrection to the day when the true King returns in glory at the last day. And that future is fixed in real space and time. It's going to happen. If you're here and you don't know Christ, that is terrible news for you. Terrible news for those who do not acknowledge God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. If you're here and you do not trust Christ, that's the worst news you could hear. You are lost in your sin without a Savior, and when the King comes, His wrath comes with Him. It'll be a day of judgment. Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. Please, Flee to Jesus, repent, and turn to Christ. But for those who do trust Christ, that is incredible news. Incredible news. As we say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Why? Our King is coming. Philippians 2, 9-11 Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that's above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what? Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. Quote, What God did when He sent His Son into the world is an absolute guarantee that He will do everything He has ever promised to do. End quote. Every blessed word of it. 
We look backwards. We examine our current situation. Then we look forward. And we find that we're surrounded by an ocean of God's covenant faithfulness. You might be here right now and life is real hard right now. But if you are here and you trust Christ, you are surrounded by an ocean of God's covenant faithfulness. He has forever been faithful. He will forever be faithful. And you are surrounded by that. You might feel like you're an island on an island right now and it is just filled with pain and misery. Take heart, your king is coming. And you are not alone. Rest in Christ. Trust in Christ. Lean into all that he has done in the past and lean into all that he has promised to do in the future and find hope. Find hope. There's always hope in Christ. Almost done. Hang with me. Here's a quote by Kent Hughes again. He says, Finally, Mary looked back on God's covenant promise to Israel, first stated in Genesis 12, 3. It says, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, and then sang of its fulfillment in the prophetic tense. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Kent goes on and says, God's covenant is a done deal. The remarkable thing is that as Christians, we are the spiritual seed of Abraham, his descendants through faith. And as such, his covenant mercy extends to us forever and ever. His mercy is an accomplished fact. Thus, Mary's song ends on an eternal note of mercy. End quote. God's faithful. He always has been. He always will be. And he's spoken to our darkness by sending his son. And we can echo that phrase that's found there in this quote. Now he shines the long-expected one. Let creation praise its Lord evermore and evermore. And so sing those Christmas songs. Sing them with joy. Sing them with hope. Sing them with confidence. Sing your guts out this time of year. Sing those Christmas songs. You know, as we consider the long at the advent of the long expected Jesus, let us praise our Lord evermore and evermore because he's faithful. He's always faithful. He will never be unfaithful. And he has promised that I will never leave you or forsake you, and I am coming back again. And how do we know that he's going to be faithful to fulfill that promise? Because he said, I'm going to come in flesh, and dwell among you. And we see that all the way back in Genesis 3, a page and a half in the Bible. There's this Redeemer that's going to come. It's the first time the Gospel's mentioned, and the whole rest of the Bible is an outworking of what happened a page and a half in the Bible when we blew it. God's faithful. He will always be faithful. Isn't Jesus good? Isn't the Gospel good? Can't you almost touch it? When you see the song of Mary, it's like the telescope. Lord, you feel so far and distant, but yet the distance has been closed at the manger. And we say, thank you, Lord. That takes Christmas from just kind of something that lives off to the side that's a nice thing to do to actually a sign of our only hope. Because it had to be the Word become flesh. He had to die in our place because you couldn't do it on your own. Suddenly, Christmas is an absolute sign of God's rescue for broken, messed up people like you and me. And you know what we do? We say, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. Why? 
Because He who is mighty has done great things to the praise of His glorious grace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, every blessed word of it. Thank You that You are faithful. You have always been faithful. You will always be faithful. Father, we are grateful as we consider Your coming into the world. This happened in real space and time. You lived, died, and were resurrected in real space and time, and you have promised to come back in real space and time. And so our prayer is, come Lord Jesus. Father, please help us to repent and turn from all the ways that we're trying to make a name for ourselves and help us to make much of you because you have done great things. Father, may we sing our guts out in just a moment as we sing this great hymn of the faith, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. And we think about all the promises of God, find their yes and amen in Christ. And so it is to Christ's glory and worship and honor that we offer up this prayer. And we ask these things in His name. Amen.